Thanks for joining for this episode of the Techspective podcast. My guest is Vivek Bhandari. Uh, Vivek, if you could uh, provide a little bit of background on yourself and your role. Absolutely. Hey, Tony. Well, thank you for having me on and uh, glad to be talking uh, about some really important topics here related to the security industry. So my name is Vivek Pandari. I've been uh, associated with the security industry for a really long time, mostly on the vendor side. Um, I've worked at a number of large and small companies building solutions to help customers uh, address the, the risks and the threats that come from a lot of the, the cyber attacks. Uh, more recently, I'm currently at Tanium. I head up our product marketing function worldwide. Uh, and as, as part of that, I get a chance to really take to market a lot of the innovations that our uh, engineering and product teams are putting together. Okay, very cool. Um, for, I mean, I, I think most people have heard of Tanium, but for anyone who might not know, could you give a brief overview of sort of, you know, Tanium, its mission? Like, you know, what, what does Tanium do? Yeah, absolutely. So Tanium was founded uh, by David and Orion Hindavi, who were originally founders of BigFix. And BigFix is a endpoint management platform that they eventually sold to IBM. And, uh, and they founded Tanium because one of the challenges they realized customers were struggling with was there were a number of endpoint management solutions, but the challenge as the endpoint estate kept growing the ability to have real-time visibility and the ability to take actions at scale with a high degree of accuracy and again in real time was really something that customers were missing. And so David and Ryan put together Tanium and they took almost five years to really perfect the client architecture, which is a patented technology. It's really the bedrock, the foundation on which Tanium is able to deliver real-time visibility, which is real-time visibility on all the different kinds of endpoints within an IT environment, having real-time access to the data and then ability to take actions, whether it is doing cyber hygiene or basically remediating incidents, right? And so Tanium's a company that's been around since 2007. It services, you know, majority of the global retailers, majority of the global top financials, uh, you know, the five departments of defense in the US, a lot of our allies, you know, Ministry of Defenses and Department of Defenses around the world, uh, Fortune 70 companies out of the top 100. So really broad based uh, install base that that uses Tanium every day. Okay. So one of the things that has been, yeah, I guess, you know, one, one, one of the top topics in, in cybersecurity this year uh, has been Around software bill of materials, uh, you know, and and you know, there's been directives from the Biden administration, from CISA, from you know, in terms of you know, mandating that we have uh, you know the, some some sort of software bill of materials, ostensibly to you know help combat supply chain type attacks, and, and just kind of know like, well, you know, it's almost like the the uh, the requirement for like ingredients labels on food products. It's like you well, you, you need to know what's what's in this. Yes. Um, so, you know, and I, you know, and I know that that's an area that, um, you know, Tanium is focused on as well. So um, I guess to start things off in that regard, uh, can you just kind of give a little background on like, what is a software bill of materials? Why is it considered such a critical component um, of cybersecurity? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great question. And it's certainly a very rapidly evolving 
and a growing area of risk and concern for a lot of the security practitioners and organizations worldwide. So SBOM or Software Bill of Materials, Tony, as, as you mentioned, is really uh, an ability for somebody to understand for in a given environment or with a given piece of software, what are the different components of that software? So if you backtrack it a little bit, let's let's just define SBOM for our audience as well, right? SBOM really in the simple words, if you look at the modern software architecture, right? One of the things that has really happened is with the advent of open source software, right? And of course, this is a long time ago. It has really unleashed a lot of productivity and innovation on the software creation side, right? For all the, the folks that are building software, either vendors like Tanium or even institutions and organizations that are building software for their own use, right? Financials, healthcare, um, you know, every sort of segment of the industry. Now, the way we build software these days vast majority of that software is you're picking up components, right? You're taking, you know, you want a web component here, the ability to print, the ability to log, audit. A lot of these common components are something that are very easy for people to just assemble, put your custom logic, business logic around whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish, and voila, there you, you got your application. Now, if you start thinking, uh, just like if we were preparing a dish, you mix a whole bunch of ingredients from, from, the, uh, from the kitchen, and you put together your dish, it's the same way the software is being put together. And there are all these components. Now, as the world has continued to digitize, we've got all this digitization is primarily, a lot of that is driven with software, right? I mean, you think no matter what kind of industry, or even if you're a car industry, or manufacturing, um, software is, is gaining more and more, you know, sort of prevalence in the environment. And so the software bill of material really helps customers understand what are the ingredients of the software. Now, why is it important? Tony, I think I think a good reminder of this is back in 2020, I think when we had a major, it was just before Christmas, people were getting ready to sort of enjoy the, the downtime and the holidays. And then all of a sudden we had this major zero day vulnerability that got disclosed with Log4j, a very common software component that's used in a wide variety of software. And what that means really is somebody had discovered a gap, a weakness in Log4j, which is very commonly used, that can be exploited by attackers, right? They can exploit that weakness and effectively give them, uh, gives them a toehold in the endpoint or in the customers and, or any whatever organization environment by exploiting that weakness. When such a thing happens, there was back then, again, a lot of people had to spend through the holidays a lot of time trying to figure out where in the environment they had Log4j. But if you had an S-bomb, a ready S-bomb, let's say, you could very quickly look it up and say, hey, across my hundreds of thousands or hundreds of thousands of endpoints across my complex IT environment, where do I have a log4j? Um, that is what effectively what people were trying to catalog. So they could understand where is it that we have a risk and let's take some action to go sort of you know, mitigate that risk. And that's what S-bomb really does. It allows you to understand where a certain component of software is and that component could be deeply embedded within a larger application stack. Right. And, yeah. And you know, I remember, you know, when Log4j hit, you know, one of the things is it's real easy if you know you have deployed Apache and you know, and you can just say, oh, I'm running Apache. I probably have log4j. You know, like that part's easy. The yeah. the harder part and where the S bomb comes in are, are like you said, the people who just kind of took the log4j component 
mm-hmm. and put it in something else. And so there's, you know, all these people out there around the world who are running things who just kind of take for granted that it kind of does the thing that it does and yeah. might not real not might not even realize that under that is log4j. That's that's what makes it work. Um, and, you know, so I think that, you know, it's an excellent, yes. uh, excellent example. Um, you know, so I, I said, I said earlier that, you know, you know, there's been, you know, there's been attention given to SBOM, you know, from, from the government. CISA has provided some guidelines. Um, I'm curious, you know, what your, uh, thoughts are on, in terms of the key takeaways from CISA, CISA's recommendations or, you know, how, how they help organizations when it comes to supply chain security. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, CISA, as well as we have seen this from the White House and a lot of the executive orders come out as well. One of the things we have realized is there's software, not just in industry, but a lot in the federal department, in the public sector, across our critical infrastructure as well. And that's certainly something that our government and CISA is deeply concerned about and wants to make sure that we are protecting it. Now, in order to most effectively protect that, there are certainly mandates and guidelines that have come out, right, both from the White House as well as from CISA. Uh, And it's really primarily to protect that sort of critical infrastructure as well as the public uh, sector organizations um, where they're effectively requiring, they realize that because attackers, and this includes nation state actors, are leveraging the different componentry of the software, which is really part of the software supply chain or the digital supply chain as a way to get into different networks and organizations. Um, and we have seen some really high profile attacks over the last two, three years that have leveraged that as that as a way to get in. Um, CISA published guidelines, which basically is requiring effectively every software vendor that is supplying into the public sector to include a software bill of material. So for example, if Tanium has to sell into the public sector, we need to make sure that we include a software bill of material as part of our software stack. So the consuming organization is aware of all the different componentry that exists within that. So in case a future log4j, and we've known there since even the log4j, there have been quite a few, not zero day, but certainly high profile and severity one vulnerabilities, whether it is open SSL that happened last year, more recently, curl was one thing that came up, right? Uh, now, of course, the severity of that uh, was downgraded as it finally sort of fully came out, but things like that will keep coming. And it allows uh, the consuming organization to fully know what is in the componentry of that software so that in the future, as and when these vulnerabilities get disclosed, they can know exactly where in the environment, which software has it, and look for remediation steps or mitigation steps against it. Right. Okay. So CISA is certainly taking a very active role uh, in this, and I think rightfully so. They're trying to bring the industry together as well, and I think it will certainly move the industry forward. Well, and, and you know, I think it's, uh, I, I guess, worth, worth mentioning that CISA does not directly have any authority over private sector sector organizations. It, it kind of comes back to what you, ju- you just described, in that you know the Biden administration, you know, the federal government, or or CISA makes these you know frameworks of rules and and and, and requirements, and they say, hey, you know what, every federal agency has to do X Y Z. But then that ends up extending to okay, but if you want to do business with us, you also must do X Y Z. And so even though they don't, even though they can't tell you what to do, 
it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling mandate of Schwartz because most organizations, you know, either either want to directly do business with the you know governments, um, you know, because it's, it's a huge customer, or yeah. even in even indirectly, and it just has this ripple effect that you know that if 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 CISA says well, or federal organizations must have this, then it kind of yeah. becomes a mandate unofficially <laughs> for Absolutely. for the private sector. You know, I was surprised, Tony. It seems like less than about maybe about 20% of these organizations that produce software today in the United States actually create a software bill of material, right? So we have a long ways to go in terms of this thing becoming a standard best practice among software creators. But there are challenges, right? There, it's not easy when you think about it, right? You have... Um, organizations that are creating software, but they are as part of the creation process, they are pulling a whole bunch of components off the shelf. People come and go, you're creating patches, you're creating versions. So it's a constant state of evolution. It's a very dynamic environment and the componentry is dynamic, right? As the software keeps evolving. But I think the practice of software creators or application creators in continuing to sort of build SBOMs and ship with the application stack, is going to continue to become mainstream over the years. It'll take us a few years as an industry. And when I say a few years, I think it's going to be north of five, six years before we really get to vast majority of the software vendors are actually including an SBOM. But the practice has certainly begun, and I think the mandates from CSA are certainly helping. Yeah. Well, and it, you know, my my analogy earlier about comparing it to an ingredients list on on a food product. Yeah. It you know, I feel like those things exist like the, the 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 basic concept of a bill of materials exists in almost every other place whether we know it or not like you know like you, i think you mentioned you know automobiles or whatever it's like there is a supply chain there yeah. and um you know and even though you know you don't you don't as the consumer when you buy a car get a list that says hey this is where we got the brake pads from and this is where we got the you know the the, the power steering fluid from but they know yep and that way when they start you know if they find a defect in in a, in a in a product from a specific manufacturer and then they can narrow that down to say okay well we know that this lot during this time frame from this factory is bad let's go find all of the vehicles that affects um, or like when you see like a, a you know an, an E. coli breakout from a you know romaine lettuce or you know whatever, they can track that back and say, okay, well we know it happened from this farm, you know in this date range. Now let's go find all the places that lettuce went to after it left this farm. And yeah. all we're trying to do is kind of the same thing for software to say, look, you know, like when we do find a vulnerability, we need to be able to then say, okay, where did this vulnerability go after it left here? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely spot on. I think those analogies are just so perfect, right? Like it, the practice of bill of material has existed in a lot of industries for a really long time. The concept of S-bomb has also been around for a long time. It's just that now in the last few years, it's beginning to gain prominence because attackers are beginning to exploit that supply chain, right? As a way to, to sort of get into the environments, right? And I think a big component factor of this here, like as you said, right, like with that, you know, whether it's a car manufacturer. I mean, I think a lot of this practice, even in the, you know, the, I remember back even 10, 15, 20 years ago, electronic circuit boards that are used almost in everything these days. It was just the computers back then, but everything's become a computer now. 
So those electronic circuit boards that have like a bunch of these little diodes, little microchip here, memory processor, and all kinds of componentry in there. Bill of material is a very standard practice exactly for that same reason. So if something were to go wrong or not working correctly, you can trace it back to the suppliers and figure out how to fix it. Right. But and they, and yeah. they just they they and I think they're still dealing with. But there was just an incident recently in the airline industry where there was like there, there was a third party parts manufacturer that they were getting uh, you know parts from uh, for the engine yeah. and found out that the, 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 that part is not actually a certified part. And now they've had to like go out and find, <laughs> go to all the different you know airlines, Southwest United and say, hey, did you guys get any of these parts? Because you shouldn't have these in your engines. Um, and, you know, as, as someone who has, uh, you know, just just was on a plane yesterday, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, totally. So, you know, on the topic of, of SBOM, you know, and, and like you said, a lot, a lot of organizations are, are not creating them you know, now. I mean, it's not a standard practice, um, but, you know, Tanium has introduced a product specifically for generating SBOMs. So um, can you... Talk to some about that, and you know how the tool streamlines the SBOM process, and and you know and how that helps organizations. Yes, absolutely. I think um, Tanium, you know, as we are in the business of helping organizations effectively manage and secure their endpoints, we saw this trend emerge of software supply chain a few years ago, and given Tanium's strength of the ability to really understand endpoint data at scale in real time and analyze it. It was just a very natural extension for us to be able to add in addition to all the deep visibility we provide, the ability to also add software bill of material to our capabilities. And, and the reason why it became so important was not only because a lot of software vendors don't include SBOMs, right? So let's let's break this problem, I think, into two parts. One is you have the supply side, right? the organizations that are producing software and selling it to other organizations. And then you've got the consumers, organizations that are actually using the software. Now, when you think about a from a user perspective and are using organization, they are procuring software from many different sources, right? You take any large organization, you've got, you know, from several dozen, if not several hundred different sort of software suppliers within an environment that one is using. Now, when you think about it, right, if you're a CISO or responsible for securing an organization and you've got literally dozens or hundreds of software suppliers, because think about it, even a little browser sitting on a desktop is a piece of software, which is made up of a lot of different components. Then you've got your different application components. You've got all different sort of applications for business, whether you're running it in your own private infrastructure, in your private cloud or in the public cloud, different apps that are running on the local machine. There's just a lot of software. Now, some of these may supply you a software bill of material, but uh, a lot of them don't. And even if they did, think about it. If you've got, if you if you've got this ingredient list from a hundred, two hundred, three hundred different sort of vendors that you get, right? Now you have to compile it, put it all together, and you have to be able to track in real time. Oh my! This particular server here, or this particular user machine, what is on it at any given point in time? It's a really hard problem, right? So log4j example that we spoke about, even today, Tony, organizations are getting nailed with the log4j vulnerability. And just speaks to the complexity of the problem because it is so hard to know exactly where in your environment log4j is. And, and for that reason, 
we created software bill of material that allows organizations to at runtime dynamically generate a software bill of material across the enterprise, across all pieces of software, and be able to sort of inventory that and know what's running at any given endpoint in, in real time. And so what that does is, regardless of whether on the on the organization said whether my software vendor gave me a software bill of material or not, and that whether that was at build time and it changed over time. I can using Tanium's S bomb in real time know, right? So think about back the analogy of uh, the the ingredients list. You know, let's say you're making a cake and you put in ten different ingredients in it, which had their own ingredient list. But at the end of the day, when the cake gets created, what is the so the bill of material or the ingredient list of the cake of the final product? That's what Tinium S-Bomb is able to do that. It without sort of needing any other S-Bomb, we can unpack components of software, different suppliers on different endpoints and say, okay, you want to know log4j version X dot Y on which endpoint you know it is running, it'll immediately give you an inventory on here are your 11 machines which are running this version of the log4j, regardless of what software it is embedded in, right? We can even recursively look through components. And that becomes really powerful when these vulnerabilities come out, right? You as a security practitioner that's looking to secure your organization can instantly understand where your risk exposure is, right? And, and that's the power of that real-time runtime as model, what team is able to deliver. Okay. Um... All right, so you just you just hit on the the, the real time aspect, which I think you know, in that 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 trend has existed for a while, going back to the you know, the, uh, the the switch from uh, you know agile to to DevOps, and it's just kind of the continuous nature. Like everything in DevOps has the word continuous, yes, in it in it somewhere. C I C D. Um, yes, and, yeah. yeah, everything's continuous, and and, and but that's, that's just part of the it's part of the. The shift in in culture is like like that, and, and and because everything's continuous, like that real time becomes more important. Like you know when when you know 15 years ago when we were using waterfall development methods and you only put out a product release you know once every nine months. Um, you know it, it it yeah I feel like the, you know the real time aspect was less crucial because it wasn't going to change for nine months. You know you, you you could you could do an assessment and know yeah. that it was relatively accurate for the next nine months. Yeah. Um, but now that you know the assessment you did this morning might be irrelevant by by this evening. Um, 100%. Yeah. So so that real time and you know that that's one aspect of it. Are there any other? You know, and and I, and I don't think there are a ton of S bomb you know tools out there right now because I think it's still somewhat nascent. But um, you know, are there other features or capabilities that you think set apart? Um, you know, Tanium's S bomb solution as opposed to other solutions in the market. Yeah, that's a great question, Tony. And I think this is something that I do want to unpack a little bit with you for our audience here because there are subtleties here that are really important. So there are other S bomb DevOps tools, I would say, right? So think about the developer community, as you said, here, constant, continuous uh, sort of uh, development that goes on. Now, as a, as a software creator, there are tools, and those are the DevOps tools where you can sort of generate S-Bomb for the software that you're creating. Now, it's important as a software vendor, as you're looking to create S-Bombs, you need this tool, and that's where it's really useful. It's important for the software vendor to have an S-Bomb because, 
again, if I'm Tanium and I'm creating software and I'm using some open source components like Log4j, for example, if I was using that within my software stack, if there was a vulnerability that gets disclosed, I need to know about it as a software vendor so I can create a patch, a fix for it, and make it available for my customers. That's the software supplier of uh, the house, and that's where we have a DevOps-based S-bomb tools that help them create those S-bombs that they can ship with the software. But now let's go back to the organizations that are using the software. For these organizations, uh, those DevOps tools are not really useful because these DevOps tools are creating S-bombs at a point in time, uh, and, and software, as we know, is dynamic and it's changing. So if you have patches, updates, it may not always be reflecting what's in the application stack. Plus, as a consuming organization, I have software, as we said, from dozens or hundreds of different companies and organizations. So how do I know what's there across these different components? That's where the runtime as bomb really differs from, an, from what Tanium offers, right? It doesn't care where your software supplier, where you got the software from, will tell you what's on the endpoint here and now. The other thing, now, once you know that, okay, I have a particular vulnerable software here, let's say, or a component here, which is vulnerable, what's the next thing we need to do, right? From a security perspective, Tony, the next step is let's go mitigate that risk. Let's go remediate it. Now, if you have a patch from the underlying software supplier, let's say there was a vulnerability in a Microsoft component or an Adobe component, very common pieces of software that we'll find on almost every user's machine, right? You, you have these organizations that are constantly putting out patches, right? You need to now patch that software. Well, Tanium can do that very easily. Like that's something Tanium does at scale with high degree of accuracy, um, you know, as one of the remediation options, like let's go and patch it if there's a patch available. But what if there's no patch available, right? What if it's a zero day thing and you have no patch? Well, there are other remediation options needed. Well, let's go kill the process. Let's uninstall the software. Let's put the device in quarantine and figure out till we have a patch or some sort of a other remediation available. There are a range of different remediation options that you need as a security practitioner when these different vulnerabilities come out, right? If there's a patch, go patch it. If there's no patch, there are you know several different things you can do. And that's where the Tanium platform really gives those range of options for organizations to be able to deal with these. A, find out where there is a particular piece of software and let's go sort of take mitigation steps to, to minimize the risk to the organization. Okay. Um, I guess in that, you know, I guess carrying, carrying that forward, um, is there, you know, and I know sometimes there's definitely in the cybersecurity industry sensitivity about uh, naming names when it comes to customers, but, you know, so we can be ambiguous if we wish. But is there a real world scenario or a case study that you can share where Tanium's S bomb solution, you know, actually played a pivotal role in, you know, in, in an incident or, you know, kind of what were the, what kind of outcomes you observed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are so many of these, and I think we can go back to the log4j since that was one of the bigger ones. When the log4j vulnerability hit, right, and everybody was scrambling to figure out where there is exposure in the organizations, for our customers, Tanium customers, it was a game changer. We were very quickly able to roll out this capability, and it was a very early version of SBOM that we had rolled that out a couple of years ago, which built on some of the platform's real-time strength. And that really short-circuited 
almost weeks and months of work for customers to be able to down to minutes, right? Because these customers are able to run these plain language queries within the Tanium console to say, show me all endpoints with log4j and boom, right? They were able to instantly get an inventory of all those log4j and we've got a number of customers that, that were able to leverage that. Um, and that was that was really big. And then so when we move forward from there, I think another recent example was OpenSSL. There was a major vulnerability that got disclosed with OpenSSL version 3, between version 3 and 306, I believe, was where the, the, the issue was. And again, OpenSSL is a very common library that's used by a lot of software because it helps secure communication across two different uh, uh, endpoints, if you will. And, uh, and with the vulnerability disclosed, anything that would be public internet facing or that the attacker could have access to would leave the organization exposed. Again, with, uh, with Tanium's S-bomb, and by then we had significantly matured our S-bomb capabilities with not only just the ability to very quickly identify, but also a range of different remediation options all built into the same platform. We had a large number of our customers that were able to very quickly inventory. Now it turned out the open SSL vulnerability itself went you know, from very high severity to medium severity. Um, so it luckily it wasn't as bad as log4j, but suddenly a lot of our customers were able to leverage that. And I think the more recent one was the curl vulnerability, right? That just got came out a few weeks ago. And again, initially it was expected to be very, very devastating, similar to the log4j, but luckily by the time the research was completed, its severity was downgraded. Nonetheless, there were certain remote scenarios in which you know it could still allow the attacker to gain hold within an environment. And again, our customers were able to very quickly just you know find wherever in their environment there was that curl library uh, and, and take the right mitigation steps. Okay, very nice. Um, Tying things a little a little bit back to you know CISA requirements and such. I mean, you know, there there are if not now, there definitely will be uh, elements of SBOM that that apply to uh, the various compliance standards. I mean, that 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 that, that it will be a requirement. Um, so, you know, are there specific features or functions in in terms of the Tanium product? that will help people meet those compliance requirements. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Tony. I think uh, one of the requirements or mandates CISA is making is for you know, companies uh, that are in the public sector organizations, certainly the federal uh, departments, as well as critical infrastructure, right? Like the, whether it's the pipeline, the utilities, and all kinds of things there are being required to make sure that they have a comprehensive S-bomb in place, right? Again, that's all in readiness of know what you have in an environment so that when things come out with major vulnerabilities disclosed, you're ready to take action, right? You're not scrambling to figure out, you know, whether you have it in your environment and where it might be. And so that mandate is certainly in place now where all the uh, all these organizations have to put that practice in place and make sure that they have a S bomb, a comprehensive S bomb uh, across the infrastructure. Okay. Um, is there anything you know? So, so 
obviously, if, you know, if, you, if you're using Tandem, you have the SBOM. Is yeah. there anything specific about the way that SBOM is created or whatever that is, is, is specific to compliance? Yeah. Or is, it just, or is it just having one? No, you're right. I mean, there are certainly more nuances uh, to having the SBOM, the ability to know exactly, you know, uh, a, a lot of metadata information about this SBOM or the details about the software, what version it is, what year and date, uh, the vendor, uh, certainly the library name, all of those sort of different attributes of the SBOM are important to have in place. Um, I think that's the foundational capability, at least from a mandate perspective that public uh, sector organizations have to have in place. Uh, now, certainly there are multiple ways you can go about doing it. There is a very long route, which is you try to piece together this SBOM across all your different suppliers and try to keep it updated on an ongoing basis. Because keep in mind, the SBOM in itself is dynamic, right? As we discussed earlier, continuous development continues to keep that component-free dynamic. That list is changing and evolving steadily. And, and then you have to sort of merge that across all your different suppliers and then know exactly on which endpoint you have it. So for example, Tony, you might have a particular piece of software in your machine, and let's say you and I both work for the same organization. You may have a piece of software machine on your machine that I may not, right? So you might be, your machine might be at risk if, let's say, there was a vulnerability against that particular component that's in the software that's running on your machine, and I may not be at risk. So that's the other angle of the, the requirement here is just not the, the software bill of material itself, but also understanding where in the environment it might be there. Well, and 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 you alluded to earlier, you know, it's 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 also getting down to the specifics of it because if I just say, hey, there's this vulnerability in log4j, we need to go, you know, we need to address this. Well, that's that's a you know, so it's still somewhat of a generalization. You know, you, you need to get down to specific. Okay, but it's this version, this library, this you know. So it's like it, it, even if I had a list and I said, hey, I, I have these you know, 134 systems in my environment that that have log4j. Once I get into the specifics, I might say, okay, but I only have 17 of them that actually are vulnerable. Like only 17 of them actually have this specific version running. And so that yeah. part that part becomes important as well. You need you need the specifics of the versions, the release dates, et cetera. You know, you need that information at your hand, at your fingertips. And I think, you know, to to the point you just made, that's where uh you know, some of the automate, you know, the, the real time and, you know, and, and the automation comes into play where it's like, it's not, it, it, it's, it's similar to going back to, you know, the early days of vulnerability management where you might run a vulnerability scan, you know, every three months. And then it was like every month and then it was like every week, but no matter how quickly you did it, there was always this understanding like, okay, but as soon as I do that, it's, it's no longer true. It's on <laughs> because scale. things are yeah. constantly changing. Exactly. So it's like, it's not, it's not enough to do point in time scans. There needs to be a real time automation aspect to it because things are constantly changing. Absolutely, Tony. I think one of the things here important is to realize is even though SBOMs are simply an ingredient list, right? When SBOMs are created, a particular component may not be vulnerable, right? And that's the very nature of these vulnerabilities. They're discovered, you know, over time. And so 
when the software is created and there's an S-bomb and the S-bomb gets shipped, that with that particular version and stuff, it's not vulnerable. But by the time you deploy it and it's in use, that vulnerability comes out, right? And that's where you need to know, okay, well, you know, I need to find out where it is and do I have it in my environment? And again, because I think going back to that open source of it, it's important, right? Because there's literally what I think millions and millions of these open source free libraries that exist that software developers are using globally. And that just compounds the problem. There are just so many of these, uh, you know, sort of projects out there that are being used uh, that it, it, it creates that dynamic challenge. So I think, yes, both having an ingredient list, but then also doing continuous vulnerability assessments is important, right? And we have seen this practice, Tony, right? Like from back from 15, 20 years ago, the, the practice of doing vulnerability assessments has existed, right? And even today, a lot of organizations are doing vulnerability scans and assessments only once in maybe once a week, maybe once in even few weeks or once a month and even lower frequency, which is scary, right? Because the pace of these vulnerabilities getting disclosed has only been continuing to go up, right? I think last year alone, there were more than 25,000 different vulnerabilities that were disclosed that needed to be actioned. And of course, not everything needs to be addressed because if it's on some machine that's really deep inside the network and nobody really has access from the outside world, well, it's not as critical. But anything that's on the edge becomes even more critical or a user machine, right, that might be directly sort of exposed to it becomes critical. And so the in addition to knowing the ingredient list or the SBOM, running more frequent sort of ongoing vulnerability assessments and then very quickly remediating. That's the other bit of it. You have to run assessments, but your process of how you address these vulnerabilities has to evolve. It has to be, you can't have, I run vulnerability assessments, one team's assessing, creates a priority list, opens a ticket, attaches data, sends it off to some other team to inspect, and it's reeling through the system for like days and weeks, that's unacceptable and it's a really ancient practice. Now you need a way to have seamlessly identify, prioritize and remediate in a seamless way, right? Through through the same platform uh, to really modernize your, your process of vulnerability management as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, I, I think we started off kind of saying that this is you know, the the concept of a software bill of materials or, or bill of materials in, in and of itself is is certainly not new, but the increased focus on SBOM as a cybersecurity mandate or whatever is is relatively new. Um, so you know, I guess you know from where you're sitting, you know, are there are there any trends you think? Are that you see that you think will kind of shape the future of software supply chain security? Like, where are we going? Yeah, I, I mean, in my engagement with a lot of security leaders, I hear the concerns around software supply chain risks as one of the top concerns, right? It's certainly something that people feel it's a problem. It's something that keeps us up at night, and yet we don't feel fully prepared to deal with it, right? And as we as we mentioned, the the concept of open source software has really been something that has powered the current digital transformation that's going across all different organizations globally. So that trend is going to be there. We're going to have more and more software, you know, 
in our work environments in every which way. And so I think the big trend here is going to be getting a grip on the software supply chain, fully understanding what is your software supply chain. I think the actions of CISA where they're looking to not only just guide public sector organizations and critical infrastructure and in better securing by understanding the SBOM, but CISA is also taking an active role in making sure this open source community, we can sort of put some guardrails in place and minimize risks of attackers, you know, poisoning some of that software, right? Because it can happen. Like, let's say I'm a contributor to open source software. My account could get hijacked or compromised and somebody could be using my account in the, you know, GitHub open source library to inject certain malicious code, right? Which when the new version of that goes out, everybody, you know, the blast rate is high. We saw that with SolarWinds, we saw that with MoveIt. And so I think that trend of both securing upstream the software supply chain, understanding your software supply chain, running continuous vulnerabilities and remediating it you know, in the most rapid fashion, that's gaining momentum. And I see the more yeah. forward leaning CISOs beginning to adopt that practice uh, within the organizations. Um. Yeah, you know, a, a, a year or two back, I did uh, a, I did a podcast and we talked about uh, the the fact that a lot of open source projects. I mean, you know, we 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 know the big name ones, but there's thousands and thousands and thousands of open source you know projects out there, and a lot of them are just hob hobby thing. You know, it's, it's something someone did on a weekend because they you know they were bored. And they said, hey, you know what? I I can create this module that does this thing. Yeah. Um, but some of those modules have become like foundational and in, in that they're used across you know millions of, of software applications. It just became like a hey, this is a great piece of little little snippet of code. We're just gonna use this. Yeah. But the person who created it isn't necessarily actively maintaining it. Like they 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 you know, there's no there's no they're not getting paid to do it. They've got a day job. They've got other you know they've got families and lives and you know so they're not sitting there trying to like keep it secure necessarily. And and the conversation we had was about how sometimes those accounts on you know the like the you know the GitHub accounts or whatever um could be hacked. And and the thing is because that thing is, you know, because that component is downloaded 10,000 times a day, it's been downloaded 10,000 times a day for the last five years, it's got five stars, you know, all <laughs> of the reviews are stellar. If someone, yeah. if someone is able to hijack that account, the repercussions are are, are huge and fast because it, it it's riding on that reputation. You know, it's, it's saying, hey, this is a five-star thing, everyone downloads it. Um, but if you can, if, if as the threat actor, you can compromise that, you know, that very quickly becomes a massive supply chain blast radius. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the, you know, the power, right? Like on one side, it's been such an incredible gift, the ability to sort of unleash this innovation machinery where anybody, you know, like you said, over the weekend, right? Like the hobbyists can create some very cool pieces of software. And there's just a lot of software developers in millions around the globe that contribute to open source software, right? Just, hey, you know, I built this cool utility, let me contribute it and, you know, my fellow developer anywhere in the world can leverage it, right? And it's sort of that short circuits the whole development process. And that's why in many ways we are seeing, you know, this exponential leap in, in uh, a lot of the innovations that keep rolling out. 
But yeah, on the other hand, it leads to the challenge of like not everybody's maintaining it, keeping it up to date, the risks of you know hacks, and then you know that thing just becoming a problem. So I think, and that's why it's a worrisome thing for a lot of the security practitioners. A, you got to tighten up the controls of your from where you're sourcing software, right? Um, and your own developers, where are they pulling stuff down from, right? That needs to be also controlled. But then, you know, have a process in place so that you can fully know at any given point in time, what do I have in my environment, right? If should something bad come up. Yeah. Right. Um, all right. Well, so kind of kind of winding down, but um, I, I wanted to ask if you have, you know, I guess any sort of parting advice for organizations that are, you know, just trying to grasp SBOM and 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 get get control of it in their organizations. Um, are there key considerations or best practices? Um, you know, just advice in general for like what 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 should organizations be doing in terms of leveraging SBOM as a strategic cybersecurity tool, or you know, just getting on top of things. Yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, I can help sort of quickly summarize it. So look, I think for anybody who works in the security space, you know it that you can't really protect what you can't really see, right? So visibility is the foundational capability. S-bombs give you visibility on your software supply chain, right? So make sure that you get a capability in your environment that allows you to at any given point in time understand what is your software supply chain, right? And what are the different components across all your IT estate that uh, that have the different components of the software supply chain? So, so that's number one. Ensure you have comprehensive visibility in place that can be automatically ideally generated, not something that you have to have an army of people or a few heads dedicated to doing it. Needs to be efficient. And there is tooling in place today, right? So, so I'm telling you, certainly one of the examples there. So that's visibility. The other thing is run, and Tony, you and I chatted about this. So first visibility, second, do continuous assessments of the vulnerabilities, right? Um, as these vulnerabilities get disclosed and they get CVEs uh, attached to it, that's where your vulnerability assessments can certainly help, right? Identify, okay, not only I know, what software I have, but now I know which ones of these are vulnerable, right? And you, based on the asset criticality, you can go take uh, remediation steps. And not only that, within the vulnerable ones, you can also identify which ones are being, you know, actively exploited. The known exploited vulnerabilities, as we call it, within Tanium, we have that additional flag that I didn't helps customers prioritize it automatically based on the asset criticality and also what's being actively exploited. So I think that's another great best, best practice. Know what you have, keep continuously scanning at a high frequency for vulnerabilities. The other thing is there's a lot of these, and it's not as high frequency, thankfully, right? Zero day vulnerabilities or emerging threats as they come out that may not even have a CVE number associated with it. Right. It's important to keep track of that and there is, Again, ways to do that for our customers within Tanium, we have a way where we, what we call uh, emerging issues on the console itself, we'll alert customers, hey, we see this emerging threat uh, in the wild. We automatically create a report, a sensor as we call it, 
for our customers that allows them to see within their environment what is impacted and allow customers to take mitigation steps within our platform. But again, typically what organizations will do, you will have your word team that's going to go do research, figure out what this threat is, and then figure out if it's applicable to your environment. It's a lot of, lot of heavy lift. But again, putting that best practice in place where you can keep an eye on emerging threats, understand its impact in the environment, and be ready to take mitigation steps is important, right? And keep looking for automated toolings that can make your lives easier uh, you know, from a resourcing and, and uh, complexity and cost perspective. So I think those are the three things. Visibility, continuous assessments, keeping an eye on emerging sort of threats and, uh, and a way to sort of automate visibility and actionability against those. All right, very good. Um, well, I want to thank you for, uh, for taking the time. I think it was a, it was a fun conversation. Awesome. Well, thank you, Tony. Yeah, I think this this topic of SBOM, it's such a timely and a good one, and hopefully our audience was going to find it useful. And I yeah, do really appreciate you having me on the show. This was really fun. All right. Thank you. I appreciate you investing your time to listen to the podcast, but I also invite you to engage on social media. Uh, please go like our Facebook page and follow at Techspective on Twitter and Instagram. You can feel free to let me know what you like, let me know what you don't like, let me know if you love it, let me know if it sucks, and uh, let me know what products you'd like to see reviewed or what uh, questions that you'd like to see answered in future posts.